You are listening to Secret Handshake, the podcast about the movies that help you identify your friends and maybe make a few more along the way. Coming up, the triumphant return, spine number 14, 1988's Shakedown, featuring Sam Elliott, Times Square, Machine Guns, Crack Cocaine, Peter Welling doing just total acid jazz acting, and a roller coaster that goes completely off the rails. Martin? Yes. They're going to file you under DSAF. Did society a favor? Got it? When the bad guys take over. And the good guys are the worst of all. Whatever you do, don't call the cops. Can you handle this or is this too real for you? Robocop's Peter Weller. You're going to miss me when I'm gone, babe. Sam Elliott. Oh, I see. The ride gets rougher than this. You betcha. Shakedown. Rated R. Starts Friday at theaters everywhere. Welcome back to Secret Handshake. I'm your host, Jacob Knight, and joining me as always is Martin Carlson. Martin, how are you? I'm doing well. Glad to be back. Me too. Um, It seems like we have a bit of explaining to do, though. So do you want to take the honor or me? Uh, I'll take the honor. You will? Yeah. Oh, that's Uh, nice. And uh, you might fill in some gaps there, too. I definitely... That's what... um, Well, actually, you're better at filling the gaps than I am, but there we go. It's true. (laughs) It's true. Um... No, it's 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 been a while since our last episode, at least recording it. Uh, to, you know, quote Jeff Goldblum, "Life finds a way." <laughs> um, I was always going with our, um, you know, man makes plans and God laughs, which is with our original plan for the site and how it kind of went. Yeah, and that's also they use that line in um, Midnight Mass. Oh yeah, yeah. There you go. So, yeah. Uh, Jacob moved, um, got a new place. Which was Cody's old place. Which is Cody's old place. Because Cody also moved. Cody moved out of town. Um, Cody's wife has started a um, PT program, which is super exciting, but he is four hours away. Yeah. Um, Something like that. Um, And I moved as well. And you got two promotions? Got two (laughs) promotions. One since we last recorded. Yeah, exactly. um, But yeah. that also, you know, I had to focus on the the business. Well, and I got a new job too in the meantime, basically right in the middle of when we were releasing episodes, which was part. I mean, if if we're gonna blame anything, honestly, I'm the one to take the the majority of the blame on this because like we had all this stuff basically in the can. I had edited a lot of it, and then I took a new job, which literally saw me working. 60 plus hours a week, like helping to open and then run a restaurant with my girlfriend, Carrie. And it just, the monkey wrench got thrown into the machine, let's say. And we tried to get stuff out when we could, but it just, it sucked. Like all of a sudden, you know, we conceived secret handshake at the height of the pandemic when either we were locked down without jobs and unemployed, you were working completely from home, you know, And it just, it was the time that if you were going to create something, you could do it, 
in such a concentrated fashion. And I mean, even that was part of why we did create the site and the podcast and everything is that it was just a way that we could like hang out during this horrible global event that was overtaking humanity and just talk about the things that we really, really liked, which were movies, you know, it was the thing that we always bonded over. Um, and then life went back to, I, I hesitate to use the word normal, but society began to function again. And in turn, we had responsibilities that we had to fulfill. And then that kind of made running a new website and podcast very, very difficult. Um, but we've gotten everything that we had in the can for the most part out. There's a couple things that we recorded that we're still deciding if whether or not they're going to see the light of day because they're a little looser, let's yeah. say, than what our, yeah. our, our usual podcast episodes were like. Um, but then, you know, Cody moved and you and I do more or less, uh, Monthly movie nights, or not monthly, but weekly, weekly, weekly yeah. movie nights. Yeah, monthly is totally way <laughs> off. But like we we do almost weekly movie nights, you know, depending again on schedules and stuff. But because I have a bar in the house now that I basically turned into our video store bar. And it's awesome. And we just sit there and we drink and we rifle through an archive of films just watching things kind of in the spirit of the podcast without, you know, at first we didn't even plan it that way. We were just watching movies to like bro down and pass time and get drunk, frankly. But then it turned into like, Oh, I've never seen this. Oh, I've never seen this. Oh, let's pull this off the shelf. Let's do this. And we just started rifling through things that we really, really liked. And that became the new inspiration for what this run of secret handshake episodes is really going to be, which is, sort of the same and slightly different. I mean, I would say it's mostly the same with a, a slight twist. What's the twist, Martin? Um, we're doing kind of more of a fully an auteur route. Um, sure. And again, this kind of came from, like you're saying, picking things off the shelf. And you and I both have that same mentality. And a lot of, I think a lot of people who listen, you find out a, dire a director you like, and you're like, show me everything. Right. You know, from the good to the bad. And, um, and to get into, you know, this week's episode, you'd spoken of Glickenhaus so many times and I had seen none, yeah. um, until we watched Shakedown and that was the first we watched. Had you, you hadn't seen any, I thought you had seen one or two, no, zero. Zero. Holy shit. For people who aren't aware, this is James Glickenhaus of Shapiro Glickenhaus Infamy made... Prison. The Soldier, yeah. uh, Shakedown, which is the main movie for this week. McBain. Um, McBain with Christopher Walken. Um, the Protector with Jackie Chan. Like, he was one of the great kind of NYC grime guys who went on to become almost an action auteur to a certain degree, but also a partner in one of the biggest kind of disreputable... Uh, schlock houses to come out of the late eighties and early nineties, which was SGE uh, Shapiro Glickenhaus house entertainment. Um, but yeah, I didn't realize you had seen zero. So shakedown was the first one. And dude, like shakedown was like the, the pure spirit of like secret handshake us, us watching it together that night, because it was like, 
It was a movie that I had on the shelf. I had seen a few times, but always remembered it, it, it being like a movie I really liked, but kind of middle of the road. And then we watched it together and we're straight up like borderline fist pumping and yelling and just just losing our minds in the bar. Yeah, it was, uh, like you said, it was a pure secret handshake experience. And I, I think, and we'll get into it more in this episode, but there's something about that film, and, and having watched more of his films now, of him really um, going past the limits <laughs> of, of what you would expect from that kind of film. Um, yeah. There are times where you have, you know, we're watching, you know, very, we're in a very digital age with special effects and there are scenes, especially shakedown and, and, and McBain as well. We're like, Holy shit. Like you're in times square and you just like had a guy jump. Like you had, a, you had a, um, what, what falls over a, like a light pole. Right. You know, and you're full it's, on- it's shot at the lyric theater, the theater, I believe on 42nd street. I was reading, I'm, I'm going to reference this a bunch as we talk about his movies, but, I was reading a book uh, before I came over your house and uh, apologies to James Shapiro, who this is his copy of this book and I've had it for a a long time on my shelf and he keeps asking me, when am I going to get that Shapiro Glickenhaus book back? And I'm like, oh yeah, eventually. It's just, you know, but I read it all the time because it has all these crazy um, uh, interviews with both Leonard Shapiro and James Glickenhaus and like, Jalal Merhi, Cynthia Rothrock, um, all these film, like Christian uh, Ingvarsorden, who was like a director who worked with them a lot. Uh, Joe Zito, unfortunately, does not show up to talk about Red Scorpion. But it's just, it's very, very in-depth. And it's co-written uh, by a guy who actually uh, worked for SGE for like eight years. And that is... Stephen Roberts. The official title of the book is The Untold, In-Depth, Outrageously True Story of Shapiro Glickenhaus Entertainment. It's uh, Stephen Roberts, Marco Seidelman, and Nadia Rawlings, I believe, are the three authors. I have the copy sitting right next to me. I'm trying to side-eye it and get all the information off of it. But it's just so, so, so in-depth. But he uh, specifically goes into um, how Shakedown was shot in New York City for 51 straight days. And they even roped off all of Times Square, 42nd Street, for two straight nights from midnight until 8 a.m. Like, they actually shot that on location, as you're saying, like, at the Lyric Theater. like, And it's a full-on, like, one of the craziest fucking shootouts slash chases you'll ever see in a movie. Yeah, and, and you had mentioned, too, that, and correct me if I'm wrong, but they had a history with some other more, like, even lower-budget films of stealing shots, like, around New York specifically. Of Well, that was just the, the Glickenhaus way, because um, Shakedown is the first official SGE production. With because, Universal, right? No, 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 with SGE. Oh, okay. Because he made The Exterminator in, I believe, 1980 like 1979, uh, 1980. And Lenny Shapiro was working for, uh, Avco, uh, embassy mm-hmm. with Bob Ramey, um, and bought the exterminator and it made a bunch of money for Avco. And then he helped, uh, 
Glickenhaus basically raise money for his other movies like unofficially, but they didn't actually fully partner because it was uh, Shapiro Entertainment at first. And then they didn't partner until 1987, 1988 to make Shakedown, which was originally it was originally titled Blue Jean Cop. Like that was the name of the movie. That's a line in the movie. Too. Like even well, Glickenhaus even says it's his preferred title for the movie. He says Universal basically forced Shakedown on them. And you're like, I don't know. Like Shakedown's better than Blue Jean Cop. I'm gonna have to disagree with you there, James. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I see what he's going for, like, thematically, and watching the film just again today of this idea of, of the well, the plainclothes cop, one thing, but also someone, I mean... Well, and they use Blue Jean, as you just kind of say, in the movie as almost like a shorthand for a certain kind of plainclothes cop is that it was a, like, the Blue Jean cop was a dirty vigilante cop and almost like a, a, a band of cops within the NYC department um, that were ripping off drug dealers and, and basically in engaging in vigilante violence, like when they were quote unquote off the job, which was never with that in mind, let's, let's real quick go over the plot. Um, sure. Just for those who haven't seen it. So, um, I can go over it briefly. Go for it. Um, you just watched it today. So just watch your mind. So the, kind of inciting incident of the film is a um, crack cocaine dealer is in, in um, Central Park and is a cop walks up to him, a plainclothes cop, a blue jean cop walks right. up and does not present himself as a policeman doesn't show his badge. We don't see what happens, but we hear gunshots, cops come over and the person you find out is a cop is dead and the Drug dealer is carted off to jail saying, you killed a cop. He did not know this was a cop. He shot this guy in self-defense, as he says. And this guy is like a hardcore Nino Brown-style crack dealer. Yeah, and it's the bad bad guy from Crow City of Angels. Oh, shit, that's right. I was trying to figure out where he's from. Richard Brooks, I want to say. Yeah, he was also on the He the Night TV show, I believe. Yeah, yeah, Um, yeah. yeah, And he's got a great voice, like that really deep voice. And he's good in this movie, too. Um, Peter Weller is a kind of ladder climber, um, public defender who is engaged to a very, um, a rich woman whose, whose dad is a like high, he's a lawyer. Um, well, and he's Weller's jumping ship at the beginning of the movie from being a, uh, public defender to corporate more like law. corporate law, because there's that weird scene at the Harbor with him and John C. McGinley where they're just like wheeling and dealing and talking about how much money Weller's about to make and how he's just a total sellout. And Weller's like, yeah, fuck it. Like there's very, um, well, to, to real quick summarize the plot, then it, he gets wrapped up in a conspiracy with also his friend, frenemy, who's his uh, fiance's ex, Sam Elliott, who is also a blue jean cop, but kind of has some morals. Um, he has the style of a blue jean cop. Like he's, I he, took Elliot's thing is that he's not a blue jean cop. He's the the definition of a plain clothes like detective, who's just he lives in time. Like he literally lives in a Forty Second Street theater. Like we watch him wake up in a Forty Second Street theater while uh, Glickenhouse's The Soldier is playing the in the background. I should add go down into the bathroom, take out like a toothbrush and some water out of like a little, uh, like it's almost like hiding place in the bathroom, brushes teeth and Weller just kind of pops and he's like, 
oh, is this your office? Basically. But it, I never, I didn't get the vibe that he was a blue jean cop. He just wears blue jeans because he's Sam fucking Elliot. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, and maybe I'm, I'm just misremembering from today, but I think someone might have called him one, but he's like, I'm not. He yeah. might have been more like, I'm not. Because there's, there's definitely a theme in the film of like, I'm a plainclothes cop who kind of pushes the the envelope. When He's a I, cowboy. I, how I treat perps, but I'm not those guys. I'm not yeah. these guys out robbing. And you know pretty early on. And you you, know, you, watch, you look at the cover of this movie, and you really expect a buddy cop movie. And, and it, it kind and it, of is. There's there's moments. There's literally like they they split apart for most of the movie, and they come together for like two action scenes. Yeah, it's a total two hander. It's really or two different. Like it's you know because you have Weller's. Um, kind of legal issues and then also his relationship stuff yep. going on because he gets basically in this was one of my biggest nitpicks with the movie even like because I watched it we watched it together and then I watched it again prepping for this episode and there's one thing that I, I have a distinct nitpick with which is his his second romance let's say which is with the district attorney who's going to try the guy that he's defending yeah and you're like, there's a lot of like ethical things happening here. Like, you're definitely not supposed to do this. There's also a scene in this movie. <laughs> that, so rewatching it, and we can get into this now. Something you and I talked about when we watched this, and then we watched the um, Executioner together, um, and also McBain, and 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 today Slaughter. I watched Slaughter of the Innocents today. I watched the protector today. So we're, we're in full Glickenhaus mode is that he's, he's a kind of filmmaker and a storyteller who it seems like all of the tropes in his films are just tropes from movies, not based on real life. Like we talked about this, like it's, it's almost like if a, like somehow you think about Tarantino, Tarantino is always using stuff from other movies. Glickenhaus is not doing it in a referential way. It's like, no, this is the way the world is because I've seen it in a movie. Well, it's, it's twofold. I agree with that. But then after we talked about that, when watching it that night, I watched some interviews with him, uh, specifically on the disc for his first film, The Astrologer, which is a movie not to be confused which with our favorite movie, The Astrologer, which was also the same year in 1975, and they often get basically mixed up with one another, um, is that he calls The Astrologer his student film because it's basically an adaptation of a book that was written by his then-girlfriend, um, soon-to-be wife's, dad uh that was a bestseller that he basically her dad basically gave him the option to to take it and produce it into a movie he took it off tried to get it made with like um William Friedkin at one point like just like he was just going to produce it mm -hmm. and adapt it and Friedkin he tried to like court to like direct it and Friedkin just kind of blew him off mm -hmm. so he ended up raising $30,000 and just directing it himself but he even calls it his student film because he was like, one of the main pieces of feedback I got from it was that the dramatic stuff sucks, but whenever there's action going on, that's pretty good. And we want more of that. Like distributors would tell him because he would like pack the, he was one of those total dudes who made the movie himself, produced it, directed it, like helped edit it. All that stuff. And then when it came to distribution, more or less distributed it himself, like would pack film cans up, take them to like regional drive-in circuits, 
give them, you know, an option for like a week to play it, get some proceeds from it and just make money that way. But he was like, it was a crash course in learning what audiences responded to because the astrologer is a real fucking weird movie. And it's honestly not very good. It's a global kind of conspiracy numerology thing that also involves like the possible resurrection of the Messiah and numerology and how governments uh, use this stuff to uh, more or less like manipulate information. Like you watch it and you're like, Oh my God, this movie's 78 fucking minutes long. And like, you're trying to cram all this shit into it. Like a huge, like globe trotting type thing. And he just, kind of learned that it was like, well, this doesn't work, but the shit that does work is just pure action. So I think to a degree, it's not so much how he thinks the world works through movies. It's just where he's like, I'm really good at this visual storytelling, blowing shit up stuff, less talky, more shoot, you know? I would, I mean, and I did not know that history and I would totally agree. And I think that whatever you want to say about, his films is you get your money's worth. Um, I mean, 100% like, and I, again, I think back to like what I was saying about first time seeing shakedown is I expected a certain size of movie in my head that even though it had relatively big stars like Sam Elliott, um, and Peter Weller right after RoboCop too. Right. And, and, and right after Roadhouse for Sam Elliott. Right. Um, and or the same year before, I guess. Year before Roadhouse, I believe. But he's in that he's he's famous and he's you know, also in pure roadhouse mode in this movie. Like he's just greasy, same and same hair. And awesome. Yeah, very like very just sexual. I mean, I mean really, I mean like very like man. Yeah, I like fuck he, Sam Elliott. Yeah, totally. He looks like a, the Marlboro Man. I mean, just like full on, just like, that's what a man looks like. Didn't he play the Marlboro Man in Thank You for Smoking? That Jason Reitman movie? Isn't he the guy suing the tobacco company because he was the ad? I think he did, you know... I haven't seen that movie in years, but... Yeah, it's not great, but... Um, but there's definitely a feeling of, I'm going to see a certain size movie here. Yeah. And I'm, one thing I'm not going to see is a shootout on 42nd Street. With an Uzi. With an Uzi. Where it got the dude literally pops the fucking Uzi out of his sleeve and has like, oh no, he nope. pops one gun from his sleeve, nope. shoots a dude, and then he gets the dual guns that like are on holsters? No, this is, I only know to I watch you, it today. Yeah, I, I know that you fucking went frame by frame on this being a, a gun nerd. <laughs> so, he shoots blades. They're not. They're they're knives. Oh, I and, thought they were single shot like pistols. So almost. he goes like this. And they, I think he shoots out like knives, and the guys go like, because oh, it's all under a kimono. Nobody can see you, Martin. Sorry. So, yeah, <laughs> I forgot. This is only on. Uh, it's an oral medium. Yeah. So see if y'all see what my hands are doing. <laughs> Just stay with me. But then, yeah, underneath he opens up his kimono, and there's like a metal like. And he um, is a giant black drug dealer slash pimp who kind of looks like Ving Rhames wearing a purple kimono. And he's got like a, a little headband and a big bushy mustache. And then but under he almost has like it's one it looks like a um um a steady cam arm like comes out with an Uzi on it. Yeah. And he grabs that and just starts spraying. Well, it's kind of like, like the Travis Bickle. Yes, to very where, like it, it ejects the guns into his hands, but it's a fucking Uzi. <laughs> it's so crazy. And it, I think like that was the moment watching this with you 
And again today, I, mean, I knew it was coming today, but I was still just like, fuck it. I was pumped for it. I'm like, oh man, this is the scene. Is it really takes on a comic booky flair, like kind of out of sure. nowhere. Cause like until that point, like he's kind of going for some quote unquote realism of like, you know, dirty cops on the street. It there's, there's action. There's like, there's foot chases and there's things like that. But this is, if I remember the only like big, the first big action scene in the movie. It's and, almost like NYC grindcore like uh, Magnum Force to a certain degree. Exactly. And it goes really wild. And all of a sudden, this guy hops in a fucking police car. And then Sam Elliott hops on a uh, three-wheeled motorcycle. Peter Roller hops in the back and says, you drive, I shoot. It's like a fucking... It, it's it, a video it's a total, game. Oh, I was going to go with a Western scene where it's just two guys who jump on a horse and Weller has a fucking like, gun and they're going ape shit on people. It's really nuts because he... There's a, there's a thing we watched twice. There's a stunt there's a stunt in this, in this scene where we both were like, Oh, I, that looks dangerous. So is this the one that ends with the car barrel rolling? Well, so the car, the car goes off this, like basically unfinished road and flips, but Sam Elliott's right behind him still on this motorcycle or the stunt man playing Sam Elliott. The motorcycle just jumps off and flips down and the stunt guy falls down and grabs onto oh, a chain link yeah. fence hanging off the side of this, this road and you and I rewound it. I'm like, we got to watch that again. Cause that, that's a fucking stunt guy. It wasn't a dummy or anything. And it just looked very unsafe. And, and that stunt guy looks terrified. He looks... The, well, there's a couple scenes. There's also... It's the, I think it's the same stunt guys. The other scene in this film where you and I are both like, what the fuck is the plane? So there's a there's, oh, a, yeah. there's a private jet. And, and um, they have a Porsche, a red Porsche. And uh, Peter Reller is driving this time. Sam Elliott is shooting slash going to jump onto the landing gear. Yeah, because it's a Porsche convertible that he comes out of the top of. And there's literally, like, I watched the scene closely today because I knew knew it was coming. And the top of the shot is just, like, the landing gear. So it's the front wheel of this plane in half takeoff. So, like, the back wheels are still on the ground, it seems like. And this Porsche just straight up coming on underneath. And you... You see the driver, the stunt guys being, like, super just, like, vigilant. You can tell he's just, like like locked in, like look, you know, plotting out how close they are to the plane. And they almost don't get it at first. No. And and it feels really unsafe. And it reminds me a lot of watching like the original Mad Max where, you know, the budget that George Miller had and you're like, Oh, you, or even road warrior. You're like, you push this beyond your budget and your safety (laughs) protocols. Oh yeah. Like this all seems like the fact that, I mean, I don't know if no one died who fucking knows. It seems very unsafe. Well, and it's like, it's also so to come back to your point of like the comic bookiness of it is so ridiculous because the movie, I guess, spoiler alert, if you've never seen shakedown yet, um, the movie literally ends with Sam Elliott jumping from a Porsche onto the landing gear of a private plane crawling up into, no, he just hangs there. No, no, no. He oh, because he gets back up because they hijack the plane. He almost fucking crashes it into the twin towers. There's that shot of the plane almost going into it, and you're like, "What?" Because there's all the the all the green screen stuff of him hanging off of the landing gear, and you're like, "This is the craziest shit." He, yeah, he's hanging off the landing gear. He's got this big fucking hand cannon of a gun. He, oh, sh- you know, that's right. Yeah, he shoots it into the plane, and they start to shake. And because the two bad guys are on there trying to get away and 
then he, you know they're going to turn around and land again after narrowly missing the twin towers and he takes her grenade throws it up into the hole he made with the bullets and then just drops into the ocean like oh, right yeah. before it into, lands. I guess that would be the Hudson Bay. I think right? it's, yeah, because they land right over the Hudson Bay and they land and like both the bad guys are like, hmm, well, that wasn't too bad. And it just blows the fucking blows. Oh, up. that's right. Because there's, <laughs> but there's that weird fucking shot where like the pilots freak out and the plane starts to go down and it almost hits the twin towers. It's right when Elliot bails and you're like, whoa, like this is obviously what. 12 years, 13 yeah. yeah, or whatever years before nine 11, but it's just like, holy shit, man. But, um, yeah, it's, you can't believe this stuff is in it unless you've seen a James Glickenhaus movie before, because I watched the protector, uh, for the first time today. It's the only one in his filmography I'd never seen because it's harder to see in America because golden harvest financed it. And Fortune Star, one of the big, you know, Asian releasing companies who owns, you know, even a bunch of like John Woo's stuff and the Corey Yoon stuff and a lot of, a lot of like Hong Kong action type things. Um, they put it out like 88 films in the UK put out in a Blu-ray edition of it that has the two cuts. It has the US theatrical one and then the Hong Kong edit, which is three minutes shorter, apparently. I don't... In the book, like Glickenhaus talks about how like golden harvest basically wanted more of a Jackie Chan movie. And instead he made a Glickenhaus movie with Jackie Chan in it. Understandable. Yeah. Watching it today is 100% what that movie is. But the first, I literally brought the all region Blu-ray player over so that I could show you the first 20 minutes of this fucking movie because it's insane. It's Jackie Chan is just a cop with a young, you know, white partner. He's just a regular, like, NYC detective. Can't speak a fucking lick of English. Like, this is like 86, right? 80, yeah, 85, 86, I want to say. Uh, Glickenhaus even talks about in his interviews to where, like, Golden Harvest more or less lied to him because Chan uh, wanted Glickenhaus to direct a movie for him because. Uh, the exterminator beat the big brawl, which was like Chan's first like big oh, wow. like movie to get an American release. The executioner beat uh, the big brawl in theaters for like its NYC receipts. Like the first couple weekends that the big brawl was out and Jackie Chan was like, well, I don't work with this guy. Like how's he making a movie that basically is, is, is making more money than, than mine is. And he made it for no money in like America. That's awesome. So he picked it and Golden Harvest was like, look, you can make whatever fucking movie you want. We'll pay for it. Jackie just has to be in it. He has to be speaking English because they're trying to cross him over to like an American audience. So Glickenhaus was like, sweet, whatever, cool. And he even says in his like interviews in the book is that he's like, I didn't like Jackie Chan's movies. Like I watched them and they were just kind of like jokey, jokey, uh, chop sake movies to me. Like I just didn't want to make that type of film. He's like, I wanted Jackie Chan to be like the serious dude. But they told me the whole time, like, oh, yeah, he speaks perfect English. It's fine. You'll be okay. <laughs> and then he came over and he's like, I would tell him like direction. And he would just look at me almost like, what? And he's like, you don't speak any fucking English, do you? And in the performance for Jackie Chan, it is like such an English as a second language type thing that it's it's really, it's bad. But it's still Jackie Chan, so you're like, he's he's just so naturally charismatic that you don't really fucking care. 
Well, it's so weird because the first crossover, then like when he really did the big crossover stuff in the States, at least in in our lifetime. It's like Rumble in the Bronx. Rumble in the Bronx and Super Cop. It's like that sure. mid, like 96 and 97. I actually watched Super Cop last weekend and God bless that movie. But oh, it's great. It's just one of my favorite, I think it's one of the best action movies ever made. And train scene is just dumb. Like, well, this one, so it opens, Jackie Chan's just a cop celebrating, I believe it's 10 years in America for the first time. He and his white partner are out there. But then this gang of little people and like almost like post-apocalyptic looking like like prox- prostitutes straight out of like Death Wish 3 or something. They hijack a tractor trailer. These two try to track them down, get to like a bar and then get into like a slow motion, almost John Woo style shootout where Jackie Chan's partner gets fucking blown away. But people are taking bullets left and right. There's huge blood squibs. It's awesome. I'm just like sitting there. Cause like the reputation of this movie is like 100% like, Oh, this is lesser Jackie Chan with an American director who didn't know what to do with this super fast, like martial arts, like guru who likes to run things himself. Yeah. But like, who, who, his stunt yeah, team it's, and, yeah, it's 100% that, but I mean, and this has that, like he, even in this first like 20 minutes, like he's jumping over fucking bars. He's doing flips. He's shooting guns, but like his partner gets blown away. He gets into a chase to where it, a car chase where it ends with this guy hopping the car, stealing a boat and then taking it out onto the Hudson. And then Jackie Chan basically steals a go fast boat, chases him. And then the chase ends with an NYC police copter dropping a rope, Jackie Chan jumping onto the rope, leaving that go fast boat like by itself and the go fast boat more or less becomes a missile after the other dude's boat stops and blows him up in the middle of the Hudson. I checked the time on this. It's a 16 minute straight up action scene. And I was like, holy fucking shit. This is amazing. Which the accents action scene totally results in his partner is dead. He sort of shrugs it off in that eighties cop movie sort sort of way and then gets partnered with Danny fucking Aiello. I'm going to repeat that. Jackie Chan is partnered with Danny fucking Aiello from do the right thing. And they become like this weird horny buddy cop duo who go to Hong Kong to investigate a high profile kidnapping by like the triads. They, they like it's, they kidnap either like the governor or some socialites like daughter mm-hmm. and they have to go out, out of there. So what starts as a Jackie Chan fish out of water movie becomes a Danny Aiello fish out of water movie where they go to like bath houses and fuck prostitutes. And Danny Aiello's just always like, Hey, these girls got great tits. And you're like, what the fuck is this movie even doing? But I totally get like why golden harvest was mad at it because James Glickenhaus just made this total scuzz fest that just happened to have a Jackie Chan like action scene like every seven to ten minutes. And they were like, this is not what we asked for. And he's like, I don't know. I just made the fucking movie, man. Well, especially because of, of Jackie's star image at that time. And, then, yeah. and for a long time, is his stuff is so... PG thirteen at most. Well, he, I mean, and he even talked about talks about that in those interviews to where he's like, 
you know, they had Jackie basically as like a pop star, like going from country to country, promoting these movies, being this funny guy yep. while also trying to match him with the quote unquote, like perfect. He, I think in the, the, the interview uses the phrase, the perfect Asian woman. And he goes, that was just weird. <laughs> when he was like, he was, I've been, I watch a lot of Jackie Chan all the time. Cause it just makes me happy. Sure. Um, and they're so non-sexual. Like they're so non-sexual. And this movie is not. Well, that's, I mean, I mean, I haven't seen it. I mean, I'm hearing that. I'm like, wow, how how it'd be like putting like Jimmy Stewart in a fuck fest, you know, or or like Tom Hanks, who who goes. And this even, is sort of how that feels because, like, let's let's be real. Like Jackie Chan at no point is getting his dick sucked, <laughs> but in the in the Asian parlor, they literally put like Danny Aiello lay, lays face down on one of those like massage tables where you can put your face through, mm-hmm. and then a girl slides on the table underneath him because he finds out there's a hole in yep. the table where he, he can put his dick through. So she just goes up and starts sucking him off while another girl walks on his back and Jackie Chan's just looking over from the other table like, ha ha ha, very funny white man. And you're like, what the fuck? Like, again, what the fuck am I watching here? Well, and and that's the thing that's interesting about Glick and House. Again, I haven't watched um, The Protector, but watching his other films... We're talking about obviously he, you know, you talked about him learning from watching things in drive-ins, his films in the drive-ins, and like what do people want to see? And his films offer that. It's the stuff in between that I find really interesting. Yeah. In a lot of his films, because especially I mean, shake all of them, but Shakedown, like, there's some weird shit. Um, and just in terms of interaction, the way that human beings interact. Sure. And we you talked before about Weller. It's like I don't think he's being directed. It feels like he like knew what movie he was in. He's like, I'm going to fucking try some shit. And he's doing some real bio digital jazz shit in that movie. He really is. And like, he's, it's actually the closest I would say to a role that he did here was his role in of unknown origin. Because oh, that's so fucking good. It's amazing. Cause that's another movie too. That's just, that's just Weller and a giant rat. Yeah. It's like a one man stage play about a guy in a standoff <laughs> with a rat. And it's really wonderful, and it's a similar thing where Weller's a weird... I think he is naturally a weird fucking guy, and I've heard that in, in watching interviews. He's a strange... A cool guy, but but weird. Yeah, the interviewer um, even like specifically asked him about that in the book, where he's like, so how was Peter Weller to work with? And Glickenhaus was like, he was fine. He was like, we had like one blowout because he wanted to ba- basically be like an action star after RoboCop, and I was like, no, nah, that's Sam. Like, Sam's going to be the action star here. Yeah, and it, I mean it makes sense in the film, but there's really like you, you mentioned like this, this like love side story of, um, you know, falling back in love with district attorney who they had a history together and you have that. And one of the last, actually, I think it's like the second to last scene of the film. He's in this really opulent, um, like, uh, dining room with his to be in laws. And earlier on, I think this is this is the last scene of the movie. There's one last scene after it. Oh, and is it's there? in the jail. It's at some jail where they they see the guy. It's back of the, the guy bringing the food. It's oh, like a, it's a return right. of the original yeah. joke earlier on, which just doesn't really land. But he um, Weller, you, you know, he wants out of this relationship, but he's found out that his fiance is pregnant. And again, it's just one more thing in the background of this like you know drug you know uh, drug and dirty cop movie. But that's kind of the two-hander part of it, right? Is that like Weller's part of the the story is like this very... And I want to get into this a little more uh, just with Glickenhaus in general, but it's this more dramatic 
um, almost like political sub, I don't even know if I'm going to call it subtext, like, because it's just straight up text where it's about <laughs> how like the justice system has failed, but like selling out is also not the way either. Well, and it's, it, you know, not to be mean to Glickenhouse, but his films, especially dramatically are uneven. Um, and to say the least, to say the least from a screenplay structure perspective, they're all over the place, you know, that, if it's and I'm not trying to be that guy, but you you watch the you watch the story shakedown. It's it's like whoa, this is not following normal pattern, which makes it so interesting because you really don't know what's going to happen next, and you get these subplots that go on for ten minutes. You're like, oh, I haven't seen Sam Elliott for a while, you know, I haven't seen Peter Weller. It's very kind of all over the place. But like in that final scene, he's one of your heroes, and it's not in another film that was trying to hit this note harder. Like his to be wife would be a lot meaner. And kind of like shallower, and the dad would also yeah, just he's one hundred percent the dick in this. Situation. Yeah, because they're like really nice to him. Like even though these like rich people, like they're they're decent to him. Like, hey, welcome to the family. We're so excited to they're meet. More you. or less grooming him the entire time. But it's like really kind of they're very pleasant to him. And from a from a you know cinematic language perspective, it's like we're not getting the image of this being a bad thing beyond people telling him you're selling out. So his wife's her his fiance turns to him and says, "Hey, I had a miscarriage." You're like, this is like three minutes before the end of the movie. Yeah. And and then she's like, hey, guys, I lost the baby, but we'll have plenty of time in the future. Weller just stands up. He goes, I know my timing is bad, but I'm out of here. And then there's like one, it's the last you Which see. Which is almost a direct quote. <laughs> it's, like, it's literally, he goes, I'm sorry, my timing's bad. He's like, like, hey. It's like, that is horrible. That <laughs> is so, like, she just lost her baby. And I kind of, well, and I also kind of get the point of the scene too, is that like, she lost her baby, but it's also like, you made this announcement without even like discussing it with me first so you sort of get it but it's totally played like here's my out i'm getting the fuck out of here it's really and it's really you know strange and there's a i think where i really like glickenhouse and again returning to that idea of and i totally agree with your idea of him showing what he thinks the audience wants but he still like has like very like heavy tropes from other action films that he oh sure he hits hard and there's well, i mean the soldier is a straight up just bond ripoff with ken wall <laughs> of all fucking people leading a team of like super soldiers one of which is steve james from the exterminator but like and mcbain and mcbain but there's full-on uh like a, a skiing set piece, like from the Bond films, which is in Shakedown. Yeah, but it shows it has a skier literally doing like triple somersaults while shooting Uzis in the air, and you're like, "Yeah, this is a James Glickenhouse movie." There's a scene in Slaughter of the Innocents, which is That's a Silence of the Lambs ripoff. Okay, it's yes, it's it's a terrible film. Like it really is out of all I've watched by him. It's the most least entertaining um, because there's not a lot of action in it. It, it, it is absent. A lot of the things we want. We're talking about from Glickenhouse. Also his son is the, the second lead who has about as much charisma as a fucking amoeba. His, his son is in his worst two movies he's in uh, slaughter of the innocents. And he's the star of time master, which is kind of like Glickenhouse's weird, sort of like family friendly thing with Pat Morita. It's almost unwatchable because his son is a board. He's really bad, but his son is a Haley Joel Osment from AI. Like he just has the same emotional range. There's some really like weird shit though, too, in the movie that's, that's worth calling out where he's like, 
it's 93 and the kid has a computer that's hooked up to the internet, early internet, that also kind of has AI and he can call it from a payphone into the computer and ask for information and talk to his computer. And it's not sci-fi. This is supposed to be like the real world, like again, Silence of the Lambs. Mystery. Even stars Scott Glenn because of Silence of the Lambs, and, and Scott Glenn is also doing some weird shit. Like his his demeanor is similar to both Weller and Elliot, who they're kind of like doing their own thing. They, they feel a little bit undirected. He and, loves rogues. Like he kind of just lets both in terms of like characters and like how his actors perform is like, yeah, I think you're, this is where you're going with it, but he just sort of lets them riff a little bit. Like it's totally in the script, but they're doing their thing. There's a whole scene that the, the reason to watch slaughtered innocence. And I was, I literally watched it three times. I kept rewinding and watching it again <laughs> is so th- Again, as Jacob said, the base for the plot is it's a Silence of the Lambs ripoff. There have been these murders that are, they seem biblically related. Salt Lake City, Salt right? Lake City. Yeah. Um, and his son is like a, is a computer nerd slash like crime nut. His dad is an FBI agent. So he's like, wants to be like his dad. And Isn't he autistic too? Or no. am I misremembering? No, he's supposed to, not at all. Yeah. I mean, not in the, not in the movie. Um, it's not. Oh, really, that's it, Mercury Rising. I love that movie. <laughs> I just rewatched that during during COVID. Um, but he he basically the kid finds something online, you know, online, 1993, that doesn't match up prodigy about, about one of these crimes that they think, and they're also it starts off with the execution of an innocent man who they think is the one who killed these people, and the oh, kid right. the kid's like, oh no, actually it's this. I think it's someone else. So. Scott Glenn figures out what he thinks he knows what happened and how this guy is actually innocent. He goes in and he's in this like boardroom. It's Scott Glenn standing up and it's a, uh, a woman taking notes like a secretary, like three cops and like one other person. And it's Scott Glenn just going beat by beat of what was done on in this crime scene to these children and he's like, and then they raped this kid. And it just keeps cutting to these people through these awkward cutaway shots. And Scott is going, it's like a six minute scene. And it keeps like zoning in on people. And he goes, and then he face fucked the wife. And it's just like, <laughs> just she, going full Will Graham in front of strangers. No, it's so horrible. And, and he missed, he actually, the line I, I laughed about it, he goes, and then he sodomized her mouth. I'm like, well, that's not impossible. <laughs> and, and, but again, it's, it feels like a scene that he's playing that that Glickenhaus is playing for straight, like playing sure. for serious, for uh, you know seriously, but <laughs> but it's his view of what a scene like this would be in, right. a, in a good movie, and so that's what I'm talking about. Is like, and I'm not saying his movies are bad, but it's that extra like level of like, well, this is how I've seen this in other movies, and this is my version versus there's no truth to it. You know, it feels very weird. It's sort of like how all of his, like we talk about how this is a two hander and like the second hand to the movie is that all the cop drama, the dirty cop stuff, but it's like, there's an entire courtroom drama that happens in shakedown where it's all about Peter Weller defending this crack dealer for shooting this dirty cop. So they tie, they actually tie together quite nicely. Um, but you're just, again, you're watching it and you're like, this is a totally different movie. This is just Glickenhaus doing like pre law and order law and order. Yeah. yeah. But it's well, again, it's Peter Weller 
really like riffing and wearing great uh, suits and these amazing like kind of red glasses. And he's just going for it in the performance. Like he really does kind of get out of Weller's way a little bit. And he's really fucking good at it. And then it climaxes in, like you're saying, a, a very kind of cliched move for this type of movie is that it ends uh, with him more or less calling the crack dealer to the stand unexpectedly where there's this ripple through the courtroom. Everyone's like, what? oh no, the DA's like, I object. And the judge is like, shut up. And then the crack dealer gets on the, the stand and like- Tells his story. Tells his story. And the scene's really fucking good, though. Is like the the guy playing the crack dealer is amazing because like Weller straight up asks him, "What do you do for a job?" I sell drugs, and it's like he just kind of goes into it, and he's like, "Yeah, you know, this guy came up on me. He didn't flash me a badge. I didn't know what the fuck. I've heard of other people getting robbed. So then he had a gun, and I shot him. And you're like, sure, yeah, that makes sense. Like, but it's such a really really good scene." Because he stages it and shoots it really well. And Weller's just kind of leaning into it. And it's just, it works it, it, against all odds, let's say. The, and what's interesting is, I agree. I, I, really, I, like a lot of the, I like a lot of the courtroom stuff. Actually, all of it. There's an interesting thing that happens after that. So he calls his, his defendant up to the stand. Right. And then it's time for the cross-examination from the DA slash his girlfriend. And... <laughs> He gets a he gets a note brought to him oh, from right. from Sam Elliott that he has evidence um, of that will totally get this guy off. So so because mi- there was like missing you know he had, evidence in the evidence locker. It, yeah, well, basically the guy had a boombox, and when he turned it off, when the cop asked him to at the very first scene, he actually oh, that's hit right. he record. Had t- yeah, he had a tape that he recorded it, and you hear the cop like threaten and shoot him first. So Weller is like literally says, I have a personal emergency, stop the trial, and he leaves like mid like cross-examination. And they're like, sure. And he goes to the evidence locker. He gets trapped. He gets caught by the bad cops. Samuel like, saves his life. One of which is the kid, the broy, weird, like Bronx kid from the burning. Yes. Um, um Bender. Yeah. And also the dude who works the evidence desk is fucking Richie April from uh, Sopranos. And, and just he, chomping fucking cigars and like swearing and being totally Italian. And the bad guy, he's also the bad guy in the first Adams Family. He's been in a lot of stuff. Yeah, he's been in a ton of stuff. I just always remember him as Richie April, who Janice ends up shooting at the end of season two, I want to say. Because they, they had a relationship before. Yeah, he like beat, he's the one who like has Janice go down on him while he like holds a gun to her her head and shit God. because that's what he he got out of jail and like they get into a fucking very strange relationship let's say um oh but you know after the tune scene. in for the sopranos <laughs> sex digressions <laughs> stay for the sex digressions <laughs> and in the following scene so he's across town and he's like oh shit i have this evidence now i gotta get back to the courtroom right so he goes outside and he gets in a taxi, and the taxi guy goes, "Hey, man, I know you. You're on TV." Oh, and the then taxi dude is what's his name? Um, he's an actual. Keep going. But he basically, the guy says, "This is America. You have a right to do what you need to do," and just speeds through another car chase through downtown New York, and then they hit. Um, they get right in front of this giant courthouse in downtown New York. He hits a light pole. The light pole uh, and the um, 
flat the uh, stoplight come down. There's a crane. A crane swoops down, picks the cab up. Oh, that's lifts right. It, lifts it over randomly. Lifts it over this barricade. Puts it down, and you know, Willard gets out. He just had his ass kicked by cops, almost killed, and was just in a car accident. Gets out. The judge walks out the front of the, <laughs> of the fucking thing. Oh, that's right. She with stops the, DA. the dirty cops. Yeah. And the dirty cops are going to kill him. And then her bailiff, they're like, he goes, no, I got to take him in. She goes, well, on the front steps of my courthouse, I'm in charge. I'm the law. And this <laughs> fat bailiff lady points a gun at Holt McElhaney at his head. She's like, try it, punk. Oh, oh that's a, a very, very young, virile Holt McElhaney as a, a dirty cop. Yeah, and like baby-faced as hell. Yeah. And I was like, I watched that another scene today where it was like, this is so outside the realm of reality that the the judge it's would amazing. the judge would walk two hundred feet. I'm, I'm not trying to be a stickler, but it's ridiculous. Like the, the way the scene <laughs> plays out, it's like holy shit! Like you needed this all to happen here. So you the judge walk out and the DA and the bailiff and the cops are already there. It's fucking crazy. I do want to bring something up here though too, um, because we kind of talk about how crazy these movies are and how much it's just defined by action. Even going back to The Exterminator. The Exterminator is is the only one that feels like some it's about anything up until this point. Because The Exterminator, his reactionary death wish yeah. type, hears about these, the, these Vietnam vets who come home, New York is overrun by drug dealers, pimps, prostitutes, chicken hawks who rape little boys in sex clubs. That seems like, fucked that, up. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus, so fucking gross. I thought that was in Shakedown. I was rewatching Shakedown today. I was like, oh man, I hope it. I don't see that fucking chicken hawk scene again. I'm like, oh no, it's cool. I was executioner. Nah, you just I, you just mixed up your sleeves. <laughs> I have to watch that again. Thank Christ. But it's like it, it, it's it's just his death wish to where it's like you, they come home. He avenges his buddy's death. He's killing mob bosses. Which I mean, to be fair, they also replicate the mob boss scene from The Exterminator and McBain, which we'll get to in a second. But um, that movie is like his reactionary tome against what's happening to, to NYC in the late 70s, early 80s. His other movies are just like the soldier's not about anything. It's a James Bond ripoff. Uh, the protector's not about anything. It's just a, a fucking Hong Kong movie transplanted into like James Glickenhouse's like sleaze palace of a world. Shakedown is kind of about something because it's about these dirty cops in NYC and the, the, the kind of, let's say the blue shield that they call it and that code of silence and how these guys are ripping off drug dealers. But it's also about the decline of times square and the end of times square. It's literally filmed in times square at, at kind of the end of, of an era because it's what Bill Landis would talk about in Sleazoid Express about how like he stopped even writing film criticism in like the late 80s and stuff because it was nothing but crack cocaine, AIDS, um, and like violence. And also like the just, you know, the police were just sweeping the city and most of them were dirty the now, entire was, time. Was this Rudy time? This is when was still, Stop and Frisk? I believe this is still pre-Broken Windows and okay. Rudy and all that. But it's... um. It is interesting because Sam Elliott has a line. I actually noticed it on the second revisit is that he says, you know, he, he wakes up in his Times Square theater 
And it's also what made me, again, think of Sleazoid Express is that he wakes up in this Times Square theater and it's clearly shot in the fucking lyric, which is like yeah. one of the main uh, grime palaces that like Landis would like chronicle when he went and saw all these movies and wrote about them. And that like Sam Elliott comes down these steps and he sees the, the guy who works there every fucking day. I can't remember his name. It's like Eddie or something. And he's emptying the trash and the trash is just full of crack vials. And then he meets with Peter Weller and Peter Weller kind of knows it too. And he goes, yeah, you have, you know, times may change, but like the, the Eddie's trash bin always stays the same. Yeah. You ever want to know what's popular in the deuce? You just look in Eddie's trash bin, which was this amazing, uh, commentary intentional or not about how like people lived in these theaters, people lived in Times Square and like you could actually gauge what was happening, like happening in society by just looking in a Times Square trash can. And like, you could know like is heroin in or Coke baggies in or crack cocaine in condoms like whatever you want. Like, and it just, it was clearly, I think that's also what makes Glickenhouse's movie so special is that they're clearly products of a guy who lived there and he existed there and he knew that environment and he knew what the city meant. And like that as heightened and as crazy and as comic booky as we talk about it with, like that feels re- not just real, but true. It's like some David Simon shit. Yeah. You know, like, like what well, it's really interesting too, that you said that because something that you mentioned, we were watching McBain and we can talk about McBain now as well. Yeah. Which is his next movie that he, they make and distribute with universal, which is, you know, also a large film is McBain was his most expensive. I read that he says that in the book where like shakedown was like four mil and McBain, I think cost six to eight and they went kind of over budget, even though they shot it in like Indonesia for most of the war. And stuff. they had to build sets and blow up shit actually versus like shooting in, he tells a crazy fucking story in the book about how, you know, how they have those two villages that they blow up during the war scenes is that they were literally using Indonesian villagers to come on because they could pay them like a dollar a day. And that was all they yep. wanted. But they started living in those fucking huts and then they blew up the huts and realized they had to make these people homes again. So that's why there's a second village. Oh, my God. <laughs> Well, it, it, it's something we talked about when we were watching McBain is that it's another film that has something going on underneath. Right. I, I get the feeling with Glickenhaus, though, is he's not an intentional person in, t- in terms of message. It comes through just like naturally, which I think especially you're talking about the crack foul thing, right? And then right. looking at a trash can. It's feels, more just like him commenting on his environment than actually having a stance. It, exactly. It. I think it's more like he's just in the moment, like writing is like, well, duh. Right. You know, it's like that scene in Dolomite where like the, um, where, uh, where key asks him, he's like, write what you know. He's right. Like, I don't know shit. And he's like, I know about the pimps. You see him like realize he knows this world. Well, that's what we write about. And then he has the stuff to say. And I feel like that's a very similar thing probably for Glickenhaus where he's just like, why write what I know, like you said, and like that's a really kind of profound, awesome, again, David Simony kind of little little message of, you know, that, that's a that's something like Omar would say, or you know, or like you want to know about 
you know, wandering up the streets looking at a trash can. You know, some, right. something very profound in that David Simon mythic slash realistic at the same time. There's a truth to it to where you're like, wow, that feels out of this world, but it's actually like grounded in a reality this person knows. Exactly. You know? Yeah. But it's uh, McBain is uh, to kind of come back to your point about him doing cliches over and over again and kind of revisiting and making the same movies is that it's like McBain is basically just the exterminator crossed with like dogs of war, which, you know, yeah. Walken makes in the early eighties. Cause it's literally again, a Vietnam vets, uh, movie coming, uh, or coming home movie. They basically become vigilantes like a- afterwards, which also what a band of vigilantes is that you got Chris Walken, Michael fucking Ironside with a great skullet. Oh yeah. Really great skullet. <laughs> um, and then Steve James and the other guy who I've recognized is like a character actor from it's, other it's stuff. It's windows. Oh, that's right. Yeah. And he's also in shakedown. He plays a beat cop. Yeah. Yeah. So windows from the thing, man. But they, uh, you know, he comes home. They, they basically get called back to, uh, take down like a, a South American, Drug lord slash dictator played by fucking Victor Argo, who looks just hammered drunk the entire movie, (laughs) barely has three lines, um, and still is delivering them with the same Brooklyn accent that he did in Last Temptation of Christ. And it's like, but that movie feels like it's kind of about something too, to where it's like Clicking House obviously has a reverence for like American soldiers and guys who served in Vietnam and everything. So he's coming back to that, the, the same like Robert Ginty and Steve James uh, characters right down to even having Steve James play basically the same character again. Only he gets to live this time, which is kind of cool. Yeah. Um, and then they, they go on their own vigilante mission right up to replicating that scene where they hang the mobster over the, the meat grinder and the executioner only here. It's that amazing crane shot that they do at the oh, top yeah. of the building where they basically Isn't extort from, yeah, yeah. They, they extort from that mob guy where they're basically holding him over this, like, I don't know, 30, 40 story building or whatever by like a crane. And they, they basically do a shakedown of all these local like hood types. And then they use it to wage a war against this South American, like dictator slash drug Lord that feels like sort of a commentary on like Iran Contra type stuff, but not really. So like Glickenhouse is this weird mix, like politically of this, the, these contradictions of like, I, he's clearly kind of a Trump dude. And then, but also like doesn't like dirty cops and is against like the system being reformed and like putting like possibly even though like crack dealers might be guilty, they still de- deserve a defense. And then like the, the South American dictator should still be ousted. Even if it's, if it's by like American force. And I guess that's more right wing than anything, but it just feels it's, it's this very odd mismatch of like political viewpoints that don't, well, he's pretty libertarian, I would imagine. Yeah. Like that kind of crosses over into some of that because McBain almost becomes about guys who, who, who claim a war to make up for the one that they, they lost more or less. And then came home and sold. And he has this thing about selling out because it's like in McBain too, you have Michael Ironside's character who talks about going into like private contracting and becoming a multimillionaire and just sitting and being bored and fat at home. And like, so Glickenhouse clearly is like 
anti-sellout too, which is kind of anti-Republican too, because Republicans are all fucking just corporate sellouts. So it's it's weird. But they're corporate sellouts, but they also believe they're the cowboy. That's fair. And so they, they present themselves as... They all are Michael Ironside sitting on a, a dock rich and bored, but they think they're Sam Elliott. Exactly. No, and that's it. I mean, I, I think that... And, you know, McBain is interesting because, well, for a couple of reasons. Um, <laughs> and... It's a weird fucking movie. One of them being, you said this when, we, when it first started, because they were playing a, a cover of Dire Straits Brothers in Arms. And like that's the first song in the movie. Right. And it's like, oh, this is like a prestige movie. And you said that this is like kind of he's trying to do something. It's like his kind of war movie is Vietnam, full on, like being able to go. It's still grindhousey, but yeah, it feels like he's trying to make a real movie. Right. And 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 I, I think getting Christopher Walken is definitely one of those movies. Cause you also think about Deer Hunter as well. You know, this is like yeah, that character gets to go home and and Chris, right, from Deer Hunter. Yeah, right. And, and gets to go back and but there's at the same time some ridiculous production choices. And then one that we just, the elephant in the room is that it takes place in the beginning in Vietnam. <laughs> and later on, it takes place in, um, supposed to be South America. And everybody's Indonesian. It's clearly that they shot South America with Indonesian extras and they were just like, fuck it. They're brown people. It's, no it's, one will it's, notice. it's, it's pretty actually fucking <laughs> offensive. It's, it's pretty gross because we were watching it and I couldn't stop thinking about it. Like the whole time was just like, Jesus Christ. Like, yeah, that's what, that's what? a total. These people are cheap with that. Nobody's going to care. It's insane. And like, then they like, they, they, they do this really horrible dubbing of like Spanish, like yells over this crowd scenes. And they're like, it doesn't match up with their mouths at all. And I'm like, what the fuck is going on in this movie? So it's this, it's, it's this, is it as bad as Robert Forster playing an Iranian terrorist in the Delta force? That's really offensive. <laughs> My brother did his, um, <laughs> his master's on Palestine and Israel. Sure. And I said, what's the most offensive movie you've seen? He goes, Delta Force, <laughs> Delta hands Force. down. He's like, 100%. Robert Forster. He's like, it's horrible. Um, <laughs> it's so like crazy. But, you know. R.I.P. Rob. I know. Um, but McBain, you know, the other thing that's really interesting about it that we noticed just from a, a narrative standpoint is that McBain doesn't do shit. Like the last hour of the movie. None of the commandos really do. They kind of just inspire the locals to take up arms and go for it. I, on, yeah. Like a helicopter the whole they, time. Yeah, they're on their way. And they're, <laughs> oh, they're almost, no, they're on a plane. Yeah. They're like, oh yeah, we're like 30 minutes out and all the action happens before they get there. There's and they tanks get, and shit. Yeah, you think they're going to get there and like save the day. They land they're like, oh, things, things are good, right? And to then, be fair, Chris Walken gets to confront Victor Argo with a fucking Uzi. So like he uh, falls through a ceiling and just starts spraying with his Uzi yeah. and destroys Victor Argo. That's cool. It's like you, you they didn't do a lot, but when they did do stuff, like and Walken's he's not wearing a vest. He's got nothing else. He's literally just walking through a fucking like war scene with an Uzi just spraying it. And you're like, what happens when the clip runs out, man? Like, he's I got feel a, like you put yourself in a poor situation. He's got a full like Jerry Dandridge sweater from from fucking Fright Night, like the wide neck sweater. He's he looks like a, he's on vacation. and He's just like, ah, I'll kill some fucking Indonesians along the way or whoever <laughs> these people are. It's it's fucking wild, man. Like. That movie did not do well at the box office. It, that was at the end. 
of SGE, along with, unfortunately, a massive bomb uh, from your boy, Dolph Lundgren, because they were the ones who bailed out uh, Red Scorpion after Warner Brothers pulled out on them and they ended up like ballooning that movie to like $20 million or some crazy price tag. It was Dolph's biggest movie ever to that point. Well, because he'd only really been in Rocky Four. He, right? he had already done uh, Masters of the Universe. Okay. Um, Another debacle. Yes. Um, and he did well in View to a Kill. He's you know. Henchman. Oh, that's right. Yeah. But I think yeah, because it was it. The, Red Scorpion was going to be like his launch pad. It, yeah, and that that was the thing. It was, it was going to be his like. You know, not that it's uh, stolen episode before, but first blood, like his action launch pad. or his commando. Um, yeah, like I always viewed it as like, oh, this is them trying to make Dolph like the next Arnold. Yeah, and and he could have been. Um, and then after the debacle of that was Red M- Scorpion, M- his his sidekick. Oh my god, that would be so fucked up, um, isn't it? It is Emmett Walsh. Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. Um, but then you go from that, and then he's doing working with Canon. Immediately after, right again, because he did Punisher. Punisher right was after? was ninety, and that didn't even get a th- uh, an American theatrical release. It did right? not. It went straight to video. My brother was the biggest Punisher fan. I remember we rented it, and he just like was he's like, "What the fuck is this?" He was like, "It's horrible it, as a Punisher movie, but as like just I love a that shit movie. action movie, it's so fucking violent." I think we've talked about this before, but it is fucking violent. It's mean. Like, yeah. it is a mean, like, really mean movie. It has no nuance in terms of, like, dealing with, like, race or anything. It's just, no, like, the evil Yakuza, the evil Italians. Like, it's, ugh. But it is a grimy fucking movie. Right. And they, uh, but what's interesting is, that, to bring it back to your boy Dolph, is that um, I was reading some production history on Red Scorpion uh, before I came over here today as part of the research, and, like, I didn't realize that Sweden basically threatened to like blacklist him because of that movie, because they shot a lot, if not all of it with the help of the South African government who was still operating under apartheid. That was the problem. Yeah. And like they got funds from them. Like, uh, they shot part of it there after getting kicked out of like another country. They got like troops, like provided security for them. Like it was, it was not good. It was also uh, the brainchild of fucking uh, what's his name, Jack Abramoff. Jack Abramoff, yeah, who would later be what convicted of fraud and conspiracy. <laughs> and it was because it was Jack Abramoff, and like his brother was like a a lawyer. At Warner Brothers or something, and like they, he wanted to make a movie, and that's how the movie was originally at WB. Is that WB basically was like, okay, cool, you guys can go make the movie, and our deal with you is as long as you deliver it, we'll make it a Warner Brothers release, we'll put it in the theaters, we'll take care of like the ad campaign, and then you know, hopefully you you make out, we make out, everything's good. But as soon as the the South African shit happened, Warner Brothers was like. We're out. That's it. Sorry, can't handle the, the the bad publicity after this. And then Shapiro Glickenhaus basically swooped in being like, oh, this is a big get for us because we got this rising action star. It's a movie. Like, we make disreputable bullshit anyway, so nobody's going to really care. But at that point, the movie cost 20 mil. They released it. There were all these, like, fucking protests and shit over its political stuff. And, like, the movie made nothing and... and 
all but not bankrupted the company, but put them in a bad spot for a while. I I don't know. I didn't know all the history. I did know that it was the jump off point for Dolph that didn't happen. Right. You know, that didn't happen the way they, they planned. And But he had to like publicly distance himself from the movie too because mm-hmm. it was weird because they said that like if the blacklisting stuff would happen, like his future stuff would actually have trouble getting into like foreign markets, which is where Dolph, that was his like bread and butter being. And it still is. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it was like, oh shit, like that almost killed his fucking career before it even started, which is pretty insane. And that movie's awesome. Like it's a Joe Zito, like violent ass action movie. It's fucking great. Which I guess Zito was also fired from it too. That was the that. part when I read the the production stuff that I didn't know. The Bond company took the movie over when it went so far over budget that they were like, you got to deliver something. So they more or less like Zito might have finished production, but I think they kicked them out like in post-production or like, we just need a movie like this has cost too much money. <laughs> well, yeah. And it, and, it, and it sucks for Zito too, because like that guy was on his way. I mean, after... Um, so he did Friday Thirteenth Part Four after the Prowler. Well, he was hired because he made two to bring it back to canon. Two of canon's biggest action movies with Missing in Action Two, oh, yeah. and he also made Invasion USA with fucking Chuck, the best Chuck Norris movie ever. Ever I've never seen it? Really? No, dude. My Chuck knowledge is very limited, dude. Invasion US Invasion USA ha- is a movie where Richard Lynch. Leads a, a, a band of communists, like basically it, <laughs> Russians and Cubans and shit, to invade the United States, goes on like a slaughter fest in the middle of suburban America, and then Chuck Norris comes in. And Chuck Norris is so terrifying in this movie that Richard Lynch has nightmares about him because he shot his dick off at one point. Spoiler alert. Oh my God. <laughs> That movie is incredible. Absolutely incredible. Can't recommend it high enough. We will definitely watch it in the movie bar one night. I'm, I'm in. Um, everything you said, Richard Lynch, I'm always down. I even like Alligator 2, The Mutation. So Nightmare-faced Richard Lynch. <laughs> oh. He was in... Was he in Necronomicon? Yes. Yeah, that was yeah. cool. Um, but anyway, back to, back to the, the topic at hand. Yeah. Um, no, but it, I, I, I was bringing Red Scorpion up because of the the political stuff we were talking about is because they even ask him in the book. They're like, uh, this was fucking written by Jack Abramoff. Like Jack Abramoff even um, like was conceiving the movie as like propaganda for some like anti-communist like task force he was putting together that like is kind of the, the language of which is like inserted into the movie and stuff. Like he saw this as like a real like messaging system almost and they ask Glickenhaus they're like so and with like you know McBain and all this shit like do you ever see your movies as political he's like nah we just thought that movie would make money like we didn't give a shit but at the same time they were also like they financed the first uh, Maniac Cop movie oh yeah uh, with Lustig because that was shooting simultaneously with Shakedown Um, and also Glickenhaus uh, uh, does not like Bill Lustig like straight up says it in the book. He's like, because they asked him, they're like, why didn't you guys finance Maniac Cop 2 and 3? And they were like, he's like, I don't like Bill Lustig that much. Didn't seem like my type of guy. And you're like, okay. (laughs) Shit. (laughs) But they also financed like, I think this is what's odd about 
uh, Glickenhaus in general is that not only the uh, kind of left-leaning anti-cop stuff and shakedown, or even maniac cop, let's be honest, which he again said, like, we were making this movie because we thought that would make money. But it's like uh, he they bankrolled Frankenhooker and Basket Case 2 for Frank Hennelotter, open gay man, and uh, Glickenhaus was like, yeah, we, we saw Brain Damage, another movie you and I just recently watched not <laughs> My long first ago time. in the movie bar. And Glickenhaus was like, oh, I thought this guy's fucking cool. He's a real artist. He's making this outsider stuff. And like, I just wanted him to make a, a movie like that for us. And he made fucking Frankenhooker for them, which is one of the weirdest goddamn movies to ever exist, but also deals with the crack epidemic. And because one of the key points, I know you've never seen it before, so we won't go into it too deep, but it's about how uh, crack is basically making its way through the, the prostitute community in, in New York City and to recruit uh, subjects, let's say, for his own Frankenhooker, James Lorenz makes super crack, which makes women explode when they smoke it. So... Weird. This is the type of shit that SGE was like bankrolling and putting out. So he couldn't, at least during those days, like he might have had right leaning tendencies, but like he was also he he was totally into like letting the some of the wildest, gayest, weirdest, almost perverted artists just sort of thrive in the name of like making money and stuff. So that's. I don't know. Maybe it is more libertarian, like you said. It's kind of interesting. Yeah, it's it is interesting that you have these um, that New York grime cinema. Yeah, that know, whole scene that he was part of a lot of that. You know, even yeah. just as a not just as a producer, but like helped get it done. I mean, you know? all he's really missing in terms of like that roster is Abel Ferrara. I was like gonna if say, he, yeah. if they would have put any money into a Ferrara movie, then he kind of would have been almost That's like bingo. the, the, the linchpin <laughs> at that point, right? Yeah. So, but it's it is really really interesting to watch his movies as this kind of mass of contradictions that are the clear product of a guy who is like, I just want you to be entertained and spend money. Yeah. That's those are the two key things. As long as you buy a ticket watch the film and then leave and tell your friends that movie was fucking cool. You guys should go buy tickets too the next weekend. That's all he cared about. He didn't really have an agenda, which like when you see him talk now, like I watched some of the, the special feature stuff I was telling you off, uh, Mike for the astrologer disc, he uses some language to where you're like, Ooh, it's sound. It's trumpy. Yeah. Let's mm -hmm. say. And he also, I mean, now he left filmmaking uh, because he just designs to bring it back to that fucking Porsche that chases down that airplane. He designs like uh, custom cars, like Porsches, Lamborghinis, things like that. And he's like a multi, multi, multi millionaire because he's just been in the custom and imported car business like for years. And he's just a, a rich guy in New York, like hanging out, doing his thing now. So weird dude makes some awesome movies though. And here we are talking about them. Yeah. You ready for questions? Let's do it. All right.
we're back with questions about 1988 Shakedown. Now, we're going to abridge this kind of portion of the podcast going forward. We're going to actually keep it to four standard questions that we have. So we're going to start out with this. Martin, top three Glickenhaus that you've seen thus far. Shakedown, easily number one. It's yeah. the first I watch, and I just think it's the most cohesive. Um, I think I'd agree with that. Second, I would say Executioner. Okay. I love the the late 70s, early 80s grimy vibe. And then third, I would say McBain. I just, yeah. That's a good one. I would go Shakedown, McBain. I don't know if I'm just high off of the Protector, but like I really, really liked it. But I'm going to go Protector as number three. Cool. There's yeah. number three. So... That's an easy one. Yes. What's the next question? Question number two. If you were to double feature this with anything, what would you double feature it with? Do you want to start this time? Um, yeah. I'm going to go with Running Scared. The oh, sweet. Peter Hyams uh, buddy cop thriller set in Chicago with Billy Crystal and Gregory Hines, which weirdly finds uh, Billy Crystal in action movie mode. I don't think you ever saw that again throughout his entire career. Gregory Hines just kind of doing the Gregory Hines thing, but also totally engaged with uh, this kind of action movie, like buddy cop post 48 hours persona that he's doing. It <clears throat> excuse me, almost feels like a Walter Hill film yeah, uh, to a certain degree. And Jimmy Smith's as the amazing bad guy drug dealer. Uh, we should comment. It started raining while we were kind of taking a break real quick. It's our first rain in Austin in like three or four it's weeks. very soothing. It's really nice. Yeah. I'm enjoying it thoroughly. Got a I, glass of bourbon here too. So it, Yeah, I just kind of want to take a nap now or watch a horror movie. Anyway, Jimmy Smith's uh, very good as the drug dealer they're kind of after. Has this great Chicago location vibe. Peter Hyams, obviously, like one of the great cinematographers slash directors of all time. He's the Prince of Darkness. Um, and then it has this amazing climax that actually reminds me of Shakedown, like mm. watching it, because there's this huge shootout uh, in a major uh, kind of Chicago location there. Um, and the movie's incredibly propulsive totally works and I feel like has been not forgotten because there's a Kino Lorber Blu-ray out there that's easy to find still and still pretty cheap but like when we talk about the great buddy cop movies like most people don't actually bring up Running Scared because I think they haven't actually seen it it's a movie that kind of mm. came and went had a big cable life but you know we're old enough to remember cable most people don't at this point yeah, I've I've never seen it. Peter Hyams, though, um, big fan. I mean, Time Cop's one of my favorite yeah. uh, Van Damme movies. And I really like Sudden Death, too, which he did with him, too. Um, He's just a total unpretentious kind of genre workman who delivers exactly what you want from the, the movie that you pick up the box for. Well, and and his, that's what it, Running Scared is. Well, and his son directed a lot of the new uh, Universal Soldier films with Dolph. Yeah. So, oh, um, John Hyams is a fucking hero. Day Reckoning kicks ass. And he's supposed to bring it back to Shapiro Glickenhaus. He's doing the uh, Nick Reffin Maniac Cop remake oh. that's supposed to be like a miniseries for HBO. Oh, shit. Yeah, he's directing it. And like, 
Reffin's producing it Fuck. and helping like co-write it. And I've heard it's like, I've gotten some inside details on this because I've been chasing this project for about six years now. I'm oh, yeah. stretching all the way back to like my days of BMD. Like I remember like asking Larry Cohen about it and pissing Bill Lustig off to bring him up again because I asked Larry Cohen about it. And like, I've asked John Hyams about it. Like it's, it, what it sounds like is awesome because Ed Brubaker wrote the original. No. Yeah. He wrote the original treatment and like the episodes. I think he's off now because I've heard what the actual like script was. Larry Cohen, when I interviewed him at fantastic fest a couple years ago, told me like point blank, like he read the script for maniac cop. It's more or less like a Mona Lisa type thing to where like it follows like a driver mm-hmm. and a prostitute, kind of like Bob Hoskins and, and, and that character in, in Neil Jordan's movie. And they run into the maniac cop and then they become the ones who are pursued by it. But then, Ooh, that's a lot of thunder. There we go. But then uh, uh, apparently Nick Reffin saw and HBO saw so much potential in it that it's now being turned into an eight hour series that <laughs> Hyams is directing. And it's all this crazy, like neon soaked sleaze fest, you know, that, that Reffin does so well, but I, I can't wait. Like give me maniac hop the series tomorrow. Oh, I'm so right in. now. That's great. Um, yeah, I, I, I see Hyams as similar, John Hyams similar to like, um, Gareth Evans. There's, there's, there's some crossover of like a sure. really, like a very like, I mean, Day of Reckoning is incredible. Just because I, I like, what's the one before that? Regeneration. Regeneration. That's all right. So, yeah. Um, which I like too, but I think Day of Reckoning really takes it to the, and yeah, the Scott, Regeneration the, the is the one edition. where you can, you can tell like that he was really balling on a budget and then Day of Reckoning, he's like, I'm just going balls out. I got Dolph. I got Scott Adkins. I got fucking Van Damme doing like a Colonel Kurtz thing. Like that movie rules. Yeah, it's fucking crazy. Um, well, for my double feature, did you see Alone? The no. movie he made with, that went to VOD like a year. I remember. Ago oh, it got COVID. great reviews. Yeah, where he it's it's the girl it's in the very, car, right? It's very very simple. It's very much like to bring it back to uh, somebody we've interviewed for this podcast, uh, Joe Lansdale. And Don Coscarelli, it's very much like... Oh, incident on and off. Yeah, exactly. Like, it's that, but Himes' version of it. It's, oh, it's, cool. It's real fucking cool. Lean, mean, like, 93-minute genre movie that just gives you exactly what you want. John Himes did it? Yeah. Oh, Himes fuck. directed it. I gotta watch that. Yeah, he and he had directed it because I interviewed him at South By, like, two or three years ago for a baseball film that he had made... Mm. When it all, I want to say, is the name of it, and it starred the guy who was in Dawn of the Dead, who was the security guard. Oh, the asshole who was also in like House of Cards. Yeah, yeah. Whose name I'm blanking on. He's but great. Like, he's an actor. He he's basically like a drunk uh, gambling degenerate who starts gambling on little league games, and it's just this really fun, weird kind of almost like Bad News Bears riff that Hyams oh, directed cool. a couple of years ago. Um, but. Uh, if I remember right, like Frank, Frankie Faison might be in it too. Anyway. Oh, I remember. I remember. I think I might have. Win it all. It, win it all. It's a solid film. Either way, I interviewed him for that and he had already shot alone at that point and they were shopping it around to distributors and he was like really proud of it. And I was waiting for this movie and it finally came out. Dude, 
it rocks. Oh, hell yeah. I, I love that, like, that level. And it, that level of filmmaker, it's kind of, uh, I, I forget his name, I'm sorry, who did the Skyline films. Sky, oh, wait. The, the director. You, you, Liam O'Donnell? Yeah, just like yeah. that kind of, like, these guys who sometimes are quote unquote stuck in like living BOD. hero. Liam O'Donnell is how we refer to him. L- living house. hero. But <laughs> <laughs> as for me and my house, <laughs> but you know, you have these filmmakers who have been maybe relegated to, you know, VOD or, or mostly like day and date kind of stuff. And it's like, but they're still fucking amazing and putting out good shit. And it's like good to see them getting, yeah, Hyams oh, oh. is a guy that you've been waiting to get a budget. Yeah. Like, you're just like... And that's why the, the the Maniac Cop remake is so exciting, because you're like, wait, HBO's bankrolling it, like, Reffin's, like, helping, like, shepherd it, and then there's at least some Brubaker influence, like, in there. Now, I've again, I've heard they more or less kind of like with... Because Brubaker... Again, I'm working on my own kind of production investigation that I did over many years. Like, Brubaker was working on um, Too too Old to Die Young. Because he had written that for Refn. And then he was also working on Maniac Cop, I believe, for Refn concurrently. But they had a falling out. This is unofficial. I can't put any of this on record. But, like... They had a falling out because Refn more or less took his scripts for Too Old to Die Young and cut all the Brubaker out of it and just made it straight up like mainlined 12 hours of Refn, which I'm not going to lie, dude, Too Old to Die Young, like that shit was like heroin for me, so I can't talk shit on it. But I could see from Brubaker's perspective where he's like, I'm out, like I'm just done. Yeah, if I had to come down on a a side uh, between those influences in the world. If I had to choose one, I'm a Brubaker guy. Like Refn, I was for a bit. Um, I did not like Told to Die Young that much. Miles Teller also annoys the fuck out of me, so he just like... You didn't like Too Old to Die Young? Dude. I know. Um, I only made like three episodes in, so fuck me. I need to finish it. But, um, and it's it sucks because like, and I'm, I'm going to sound like a complete douchebag here and fuck it, but like, I was... Before Drive, I like, and I still love Drive, but I, I was really into Refn. Like, Bronson was one of my favorites, and like Valhalla Rising. And I was just like, sure. I thought the he was pusher like, movies. the pusher movies. I'm like, this guy's fucking cool. And and I, I think I had those experiences with Drive where it was like, all of a sudden, he's like the most popular. Everyone's like, oh, Drive, 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 Drive. And I saw that theater. I, you could ask my buddy John. I remember I turned to him and I go, this is perfect. Like, it's all I wanted from a movie. Like, the whole I saw style. it twice in the same day. It's one of the few movies I've ever actually gone back the same day and rewatched again. I mean, I would have done it. I mean, I, I still love it. The movie's fucking great, you know. But then Only God Forgives, which I like more than when I first saw it. I hate Neon Demon. Um, I, I have a lot of friends who like it. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> Um, but yeah, Brubaker, just from the comic side of things, I mean, like his, his Batman is like my Batman. Sure. Um, his like Gotham central stuff, all like he wrote that graphic novel, the fade out, which is like, I want to make it into a movie someday. I just think like he, his, he's like James Elroy is for he comics. Is the one who did a hundred bullets too? Or is no, that somebody else? That was Brian Azzarello. Oh, okay. Yeah. 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 Who, who's good. Um, his Superman stuff is cool. But I, Brubaker, like, he's got this series right now, and it's, like, one every three months is coming out. It's a graphic novel, just 
doesn't it's not not comic form, just graphic novel called um, Reckless. And it's this guy who. Oh, lived, I've heard that's awesome. I had the first. I'll, I'll lend him to you. Um, he lives in a movie theater in like in California in like the 1970s, and basically gets wrapped up in mysteries. He's like this just drunk like private eye. It's like seaside towns in California, and like. Well, he's like the great, let's say, crime fiction comic book artist. Like he's who? Who? He's it. Yeah. Well, and then Sean Phillips, his artist, like those two together yeah. are it. Writer, like, I should say. I'm sorry. But his in his series Fatal, which is like his like, um, which is his hardboiled fiction mystery Lovecraft thing, is just like everything. Yeah. Got. Sorry, we're way on a tangent here. Apologies, but that's let me see Brewmaker. What's your double feature? Showdown in Little Tokyo. Okay. I, I was thinking about it and. When we were wait, have you done this before? No, you haven't. Done I have this not. Before. No, I mean no. Dolph usually comes up a couple times for me. Yeah, um, but I was trying to think of something. So my first, we were talking about it. My first idea was like Forty Eight Hours, just one of my favorite buddy cop movies, and it's just amazing. Like I like, I like the sequel too. Um, I like, I like both those movies, and I'd kill to see the actual full Walter Hill cut of another 48 hours, which apparently like oh. it was supposed to be like two hours and 20 minutes long and they cut it out. Oh my God. Yeah. Like the, the cut that we have is not the Walter Hill cut. Like it, that's the studio cut. Like he shot like some three hour or something work <laughs> print for that movie that he, that's great. he doesn't disown it, but he's actively like, nah, it's not really my movie. Oh shit. Well, that was my first thought, but shouldn't little Tokyo, I think has, a zaniness that is similar to what we see in Shakedown. Also, great early Brandon Lee. Early Brandon Lee. I also think there's a lot of crossover between Mark Lester and Glickenhaus as filmmakers. Oh, that that checks out. And yeah. As filmmakers, because there's a... And I, I mean, we've talked before. I think Mark Lester come up a couple times in the podcast here and there. Um, right. But, you know, I love Class 1984. I love 1999. Um Commando. Commando. I like Firestarter. Um, and he's done... He, Truck Stop Women. Um, Bobby, Joe, <laughs> Bobby Joe and the Outlaw, um, which I, I watched all that shit. Uh, I was on a real Mark Lester rabbit hole one time. I think I've watched everything he's ever made, except Poseidon Rex, about the um, straight-to-video about a... Uh, Transformers Rex in the ocean. It's like Jaws. <laughs> I missed that one, but I'm seeking it out as soon as I get home. Yeah, it's the CG is like it's like Asylum movies kind of bad. Like Carnosaur shit, yeah, real bad. Um, but Shodanola Tokyo has also a an earnestness to it that is in Shakedown, where it's like this takes itself very seriously, but then moments of just like complete insanity. Also, um, only 80 minutes long, right? It's like 77. That's what I mean. Yeah. Like yeah. Sorry. Sorry. Credits. Sub. Yeah. yeah. Sub 80, which you and I are all about. And the best part of that movie is Dolph Lundgren um, in a uh, katana fight with um, Carrie uh, Shang Tsung from Mortal Kombat, also in every movie at that time period. Yeah. Um, and Dolph, who's like a martial artist, is so scared of that sword. He's like close. You look at, he's squinting the whole time. He's so scared of like getting hit by this blade. Um, he's lambering it. (laughs) Lots of different places. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I I just love, I love that movie. And I, you know, I, again, for our listeners, y'all know, like Dolph's my, (laughs) I come back to him pretty much 
every episode for one thing. And, but I think there's definitely some crossover there with like the kind of buddy cop aesthetic. Um, again, very, very self-serious, uh, but also cartoony shit. Sure. Yeah. That's a lot of fun. I have that one on Blu-ray too. So, but here's the next question. Remake. Can, would, should. I'd say no. Um, and my thinking is what makes this movie great is, is, is the weirdness of Glickenhaus. I mean, there's just this, like, the story is not unique enough where I'd want to see someone else tackle it. And usually I'm thinking remake. I'm thinking like narrative, like would I want to see a story again with a different person doing it. And like, I don't think there's enough there that, that wouldn't come across generic with someone else making it. And one well, also it's like a product of its own period, right? Cause right. I'm on the same page as you are to where I say, no, only one guy could have made like this version of this mm-hmm. exactly when he did with all this stuff that we talked about with the times square theaters roping off 42nd street, Peter Weller being weird, Peter Weller <laughs> being out of his mind, sit like peak Sam Elliott. And also just like he captured a very particular uh, era yes. in, in New York with this movie. Like you could make Shakedown, especially like the modern version of Shakedown with like dirty cops and, and, and Black Lives Matter and like, yes, yeah. all the brutality because some of that is is very much touched on and kind of prescient in this movie in a weird way. But I think it would kind of rob it of what we were talking about before where it's like Glickenhaus's worldview came out almost inadvertently um, because he was just a guy who's like, I'm just making these movies to have fun and make money. And like, if any kind of point of view comes out, like that's almost secondary. We're like the point of view for a new shakedown that would be forefronted. It would be, this is about dirty cops. This is about police brutality. This is about the, the failure of the system and you would watch it and it would be almost too much and it wouldn't feel organic the same way. Like let's say the new Candyman would feel to where like you watch the, the old one and you go, Oh, this all just kind of came out as a byproduct of the story he's telling. And the new one is like, this is what the movie's about. And that to me doesn't necessarily rob it of its power, but it certainly robs it of its, truthfulness i think truthfulness and also cohesiveness where sure. it feels of a part like i mean we could go we could do a whole episode on Candyman and the remake but you know a film like that is a bright product of an idea by clive barker that is yeah. completely just reconfigured the, reconfigured like race is not even a part of that story the forgotten for sorry forbidden you know Ber- bernard rose understands okay you know there's still some stuff. It's a little bit like cringy of a dicey, uh, dicey of a, a white British man trying to tell this narrative. Um, but it holds together as a horror film too. It's like, it's, it doesn't forget like this is about a woman who is being in her mind thinks she's innocent and there's and it's tormented. It, it, it's tormented. There's a lot going on in that film. And then yeah, Candyman is just like message, 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 message. And eight of them shoved into one scene and it's just, it's all over the fucking place. It's a lot. Yeah. Um, I hate Candyman just for the, for the record, but, uh, the remake, um, I thought it was fine. I, yeah, I almost walked out. I was really pissed. Um, 
but that's another conversation. So that brings us to our next question. Is this a certified face melter? In every way. Yes. Um, oh, agreed. Uh, 100%. I, like, I, I think this is the definition. Uh, I think, again, you mentioned earlier, our experience scenes together is one of my favorite. I don't know. I, have, I don't think I have a more, this is close to when we saw hard target again with Cody. Yeah. It was a close one of like, I hadn't seen it in a while. And we were just like, we were all just like tuned in on it and just like, what? Like that was a fun one. This is one of the best though. Cause I'd never seen it. It had popped up. I love Weller and Sam Elliott. I was like, I was interested. I was consistently surprised by this movie again of, of how big it went at moments. I didn't think it would go big. Yeah. Uh, I'm thinking, okay, there, cause again, you, you watch enough films, period, but you watch enough films that don't have an exorbitant budget, and you see the tricks they play to quickly get away from 42nd Street or like main thoroughfares. Like even if you have one shot, you think about like Jason Takes Manhattan. They went in and got one shot of him coming up and staring at those punks. The rest is shot in Canada. Or the yeah. subway stuff. But yeah. yeah. All that shit. So you could tell they're like, all right, here's what we're going to show. This one is like, we're in fucking New York. Like you said, we roped off, we roped off 42nd Street. We're having a shootout. Like, he would come, it, it's, it's fucking crazy. So I was consistently surprised. It kept one upping itself. It felt dangerous. It's weird. Like, again, even the, the kind of like his version of, of cop stuff in between the action scenes, there's that thunder again, um, is so weird and strange. And, and, and Peter Weller, I mean, I love Sam Elliott, but like Peter Weller has got to be my favorite actors of all time. Like I like Leviathan a lot. I mean, I love, you don't? Oh no, I do. Okay, cool. I'm making sure. Um, I love anything he does. I, I hate Star Trek into darkness, but he's the best part of that. Cause he's, he's having a lot of, he's fun having a great the same time. way he is here. Yeah. He just like, and I've also heard he's like, I heard he's a, again, he's a weird guy I've heard, but like just super fucking cool. He's like, he's like a PhD in archeology. span Yeah. Like he was like, yeah, he got his whole other life after acting. Um, but yeah. I mean, I agree with you from the stance of like, you had never seen it before, but I had a couple times and watching it this time with like some years between viewings, like I was like, oh my God, there's shit about this movie. I totally forgot. And it blew my mind. Like the whole plane hijacking it's sequence crazy. at the end, like, because you're watching, you're like, okay, okay, okay. This is a great street level, like exploitation movie. And then it goes to there and you're like, what the fuck? Like it just, it's just totally nuts and entertaining and like works. I'd love to watch it on the big screen on like 35 millimeter with an audience. If that ever happens again. Uh, but yeah, I'm on the, I'm on board certified face melter. This totally works. Can't wait to watch it again. Have a couple times since we watched it. So I'm into it. Yeah. I watched it during work today. Just, you know, if any of my coworkers are listening, I apologize, but I had to get it done to brush up and I, <laughs> you know, I have no regrets. <laughs> so, well, there you go, man. This is the first episode spine number 14 of the new iteration of secret handshake. Martin. Good to be recording. Great to be here, sir. And we got more in store. So we'll see you guys next time. See ya.